Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and another episode in our second series of Asia in the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. We showcase people whose work, life, and experience shed light on what's taking place in and between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. In this episode, Jasmine Stadler gives us an inside view of China from her perspective as a member of the 2017 inaugural class of Schwarzman Scholars at Beijing's Tsinghua University. This is a stellar, up-close, and personal report of what's hot and what's not among Chinese of college age and just beyond. A Swiss citizen, Jasmine's been going to China since she was 16 and speaks Mandarin fluently as well as English, French, and German. This call of ours took place with Jasmine in Shanghai using her mobile phone and me in New York City. So at times the sound quality is challenged, but no matter, her comments are the big value here. Just recently we talked about the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Okay, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. It's, it's a book that's kind of has the same status as perhaps, hmm, let me think, maybe Jaya talking in Lord of the Rings. It's kind of like a, a, a very sort of heroic epos um, that plays in a period after the collapse of the Eastern Han Dynasty, I believe. I might have messed up my history there. But it's a book that everybody in China has either read or seen a sort of a TV show about, or they play video games with the theme. So people drop, say, sort of like names of characters or, or use like idioms that come from this book. That's just one um, example that I discussed with a friend recently where it's just, it's useful. And if you're in a conversation with the Chinese people and you drop a reference from Sangwa Yanyi from the Three Kingdoms, um, then they will think, ah, this, this foreigner knows about Three Kingdoms. You know, that's a book I read in my childhood. And they automatically feel that much more respected by you because you happen to know something that is, you know, yeah, part of their life that they thought you probably wouldn't know. That's Jasmine talking of the importance of people everywhere learning another language and then being able to speak it in a place where it's the native tongue. We talk about how young Chinese feel they are in the best place possible to pursue an unlimited future, especially those who are entrepreneurial. But create this, this really quite incredible ecosystem for, for, for entrepreneurship. And it seems as if there's almost a competition between localities to provide this kind of space to entrepreneurs. There's plenty of VC capital around. And um, so whether how where that will go, um, many of these entrepreneurs are now still in the starting blocks. And you see daily um, kind of the, the, the amazing figures of, of startup enterprises that, that started maybe one or two years ago that are now huge. One of her particular interests is AI, and Jasmine says China is the ideal place to pursue it. Now, at the moment, I'm doing um, uh, a short internship in in a peer-to-peer lending company, which many of which operations are are based entirely upon salvaging uh, customer data. And uh, many of the very large Chinese enterprises, Alibaba, Tencent, they're they're using a lot of this data that is generated by their applications in order to do everything from trying to improve the flow of traffic in cities to uh, trying to create social credit scores for people who might not have a credit card or not access to credit. So there's a lot of new innovation sort of revolving around the fact that China is just so large and has so many people that um, um, kind of create new opportunities for people who are able to harness these big data sets. We talk about all this and more, including what strategic patience is and why China is so good at it. 
why Chinese, even young ambitious Chinese, are so pleased with their government and feel in safe hands. How the boom-time optimism she saw during the Beijing Olympics has cooled, yet remains sufficiently hot for boundless enthusiasm for the future, and what challenges could still get in the way of China achieving all it plans to do. I'm delighted that we're having this conversation, Jasmine. Welcome to Conversation 360 and to this Asia and the West podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's it's a delight. So my first question is about what you're doing right now in Beijing. Tell us about the the whole program and and your role in it. So I'm currently a Schwarzman Scholar of the first ever year that the uh, the program has been running, and the Schwarzman Scholars program is very novel and yet it has a, some sort of a historical pedigree in that it's meant to be the 21st century equivalent of the Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford University. Um, the Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford University was first uh, created by Cecil Rhodes because he wanted to establish a fund which could help uh, students uh, cross the Atlantic so that better relations could be established between the United Kingdom and the United States. And the idea of the, the Shorten Scholars Program is basically to do a similar thing, to create bridges, people-to-people interaction between American students and Chinese students and students from the rest of the world. And yeah, it's the first year running, and so far it's been it's been a dream. It's uh, it's opened my eyes to a lot of new things and given me access to kind of different worlds, different lifestyles in China that I'd previously never seen. So what, what percentage of the group are uh, Westerners and, and uh, what percentage are Chinese? Um, it's, there's a, a specific mix, um, namely 45% U.S. students, then 20% China's, uh, Chinese students, both from the mainland as well as from Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan. And then the rest, of, the rest uh, is 35% rest of the world, basically. Uh, where we have, I think, a maximum of three people from the same country. For example, three people from Canada, three people from the UK, one person from Switzerland like me, then we have someone from Egypt, we have someone from India, so it's very diverse. Well, I know that at one point uh, Steve Schwartzman had said when he set this up that he was hoping that the students who participate in this will be the reason that there will be peace between China and the rest of the world at some point because you're all leaders, and it sounds like... Uh, the the group you're describing sounds like a, the perfect mix. Is there? Mm, are, yes. what, what do you think of the classes? Are they taught in English? So most of the classes are in English, mm-hmm. but we often have um, speakers of all kinds of backgrounds who come to our college and hold talks about their background. For example, the company they work in, the kinds of should they see for a particular industry, or a general outlook on. Um, what they believe leadership means and how to cultivate it. And some of those are in Chinese, and all the students have the ability to take Chinese lessons as well. And I've seen the, the, the Mandarin speaking abilities of some of my classmates basically go through the roof over the past couple of months, which is it's really, really great. nice to see. That's great. So the question that I've asked everybody in the Asia and the West series, one of the first questions is when we talk about conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what does that mean to you? And I would think in this instant you've got you've got just a very relevant answer. Conversations taking place between East and West. I think they often begin on the premise that there are sort of key pillars about each other's civilizations that we have to understand. So, for instance, uh, when a Westerner first comes to China, 
conversations were very quickly in the direction of, oh, and Confucianism, oh, and, you know, uh, Lao Tzu said, and um, chopsticks, you can't put two chopsticks into your rice bowl, kind of other cliches, or just very broad generalizations of what Chinese culture means. And for me, it's always meant much more concrete things like than that. Um, so some of the best conversations I ever had in China were completely random encounters with people, with classmates or with friends of my Chinese host family, where we would, for example, sit together and have tea one afternoon or go for a barbecue with each other in the evening and have long-winded conversations about anything from everyday life problems to uh, going into sort of the world order to just kind of completely, completely running free. And these kind of conversations, they usually take place once you've gained people's trust. And gaining people's trust, for me, it's been the easiest by acknowledging the fact that um, and proving the fact by by speaking Chinese and by having read a lot of things about China, be it about its history, be it about you know, its economy or modern days sort of popular culture. Uh, when people, when your counterpart realizes that you have so much interest in where they come from, that you're able to pick on all sorts of things from their everyday life, then they feel so much closer to you and they trust you. And then all of a sudden conversations go from being very basic and sort of always in the same strand of, oh, China's long 5,000 year of history to details of what their everyday lives are like. And that's where you really learn. That's how you really get steeped in someone else's culture. Yeah, for me, that's the most meaningful conversation between East and West is kind of on a very basic human level between two people. So you've been coming to back and forth in China when, from the time that you were 16. Have you seen any yeah. change in the way, what, what are the changes that you've observed? That's how many years? Uh, changes I've observed over the years. Um, it also, I have to probably be careful there because uh, I grew older in that time and the China I saw when I first arrived was the China of uh, Chinese high schools. And my weekends were in Shanghai and traveling around the east coast of China, which is where I was located. Whereas in later years, I went to university in China, and now again to university in China, now I'm, I'm in the workplace in China as well. Um, so there's a very different perspective. But one thing that has certainly changed is when I first arrived in 2008, it was just boomtown. Uh, everything was growing quickly. And um, uh, you could definitely feel like it was palpable, the atmosphere of optimism and um, the Olympics had just taken place, so everybody was very curious about the rest of the world, the outside world, so to speak. Uh, and there was, yeah, there was very palpable optimism. Whereas nowadays, maybe less of the optimism because a lot of people, you know, have concerns about the world economy, etc. But also, all my friends in China, compared to when I first arrived, are extremely knowledgeable about what's going on in the rest of the world, and. Um, so they have less of a keen interest in in all things Western than previously, because they already know it. And um, China, in the meantime, has become for them a much more interesting place because of the internet economy, um, the entertainment industry in China's huge. People would no longer ask you a lot of things about, you know, um, what do you watch abroad? What what is it you do in your free time? Because a they know, and b China is much more interesting these days than than Europe in many many ways. So uh. that's maybe something that's changed. So is there, a, you mentioned the world economy and how people have uh, concerns about it. What about within China itself? Is there any sense of the recent downturn in, in the economy there? Or is that pretty much, it's still pretty booming in some fashion? What's your thought about that? 
Um, so I can only answer, of course, from the perspective of that small little window that I have onto the Chinese economy. And from my perspective, from what I can see, is that it's definitely booming. But it's booming in a very particular way. So it seems as if the entrepreneurial scene is extremely, extremely dynamic. For example, recently we went to look at sort of not special economic zones, but trial zones in different localities around China that amazing this amazing infrastructure and services for startup entrepreneurs. It's something I've never seen anywhere else. They're really like very large centers supported by government funding um, where they have competitions for, for people like me straight out of university or still in university to compete as teams against each other in order to get a space at the startup accelerators, which are government-backed but leave enormous amount of leeway to the enterprises themselves, but create this, this really quite incredible ecosystem for for, for entrepreneurship, and it seems as if there's almost a competition between localities to provide this kind of space to entrepreneurs. There's plenty of VC capital around, and um, so whether how where that will go, um, many of these entrepreneurs are now still in the starting blocks, and you see daily um, kind of the, the, the amazing figures of, of startup enterprises that, that started maybe one or two years ago that are now huge. Um, where that will go, I'm not sure, but there's definitely like the, the fundamentals, the, the, the regulation by the government and the amount of capital funding and the infrastructure that's around is, it surpasses anything I've ever seen in Europe. I don't know about the United States. Uh, I think a lot of, um, a lot of these places like to compare themselves to sort of like measure themselves up against, um, against Silicon Valley. And in that respect, I suppose they have still got somewhere to go, but it's still, it's hugely dynamic and very colorful scene. Now, are you involved in that yourself? Are you uh, pursuing some kind of an entrepreneurial activity in addition to school? Um, at the moment, I am not because I'm going to pursue further study still for another two years. Um, but I have an insight into it because through the program we have mentors, and my mentor happens to be in the internet economy, and I'm currently also doing an internship, um, a practical training project. It's called a part of our program, which makes me get an insight into in the heart of the Shanghai startup community. And so I can just see what's going on and how people are working, what kind of conditions they're under, and what what kind of competitors they're measuring themselves up against on a, on a daily basis, which is yeah, it's super exciting. That's and that's going to take a lot of that. Now, you said that gives you yeah. an insight into the Shanghai community, but you're in Beijing, right? Yeah. Um, at the moment, I'm in Shanghai, but only uh, temporarily. And in Beijing as well, um, there, for example, there's one area in Beijing called Zhongguanzun, which is the, the Silicon Valley of Beijing, so to speak. And they have very, very large startup accelerators. They have uh, angel funds, VC funds that are very, very active. And from what I can see, especially from um, sort of, um, we have Tsinghua University as our base camp. Uh, that's the top university in China, and they have so many entrepreneurs starting out from, from that university, among which I count some of my best friends in China. And they're very innovative. Many of them are serial entrepreneurs. Now, you were talking about Xinhua University, right? It was hard to hear that word. Is that the exactly. word that you were yeah. using? Yes, Xinhua. Um, this exactly. Is, this is fascinating. So are the is the VC money that you see uh, that's attracted to these and, and supporting them, is it Chinese in VC money or is it coming from elsewhere? Um, from what I've seen... And again, I have a very limited sort of scope in this, but from what I've seen, mostly Chinese, yeah. That's very exciting. And it, 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 how wonderful for you to have an insider view of that, because there is still a sense in the West that 
innovation comes from uh, the West and then we share it with others, even though it's, it's clear that that's no longer the story. So what about the, your fellow students? Are they generally people who want to be entrepreneurs? Do they want to go into, what, what, are, their, what are their aspirations? We have an enormously broad palette of people in the program, and I think that's also the ethos of the program, that we don't want to really be kind of bending overly in any one direction. We have people who want to go into academia. We have people who want to become startup entrepreneurs. We have people who want to go into public service. We have people to, who, who want to go into the NGO, sort of um, uh, non-governmental, non-profit sector, and an enormously diverse set of, of, of kind of broad issues that people are pursuing and want to kind of contribute towards. But the general sort of mission of the program is definitely to provide some sort of service, not only to our local communities, but to, this is very abstract, but to have some sort of bridging connection, bridging function between our own societies back at home and China. And the same, of course, for our Chinese students who, who, for the bridges kind of back into where, where we come from. That is so thrilling. I think the, the very idea that uh, uh, Steve Schwartzman put this together is, uh, is really phenomenal. So the, the Chinese that are in your class, or at least the Asians in general, do you see among them an interest in coming to the West, or are they pretty excited, given what you've just described as the environment in China, to find the opportunities that they're looking for right where they are? I think both, actually. So I know of some of them who have a keen interest in coming to Germany, for instance, to work there for a couple of years, but then going back to China because they happen to have an engineering background, and Germany has this, this renome of being sort of the place to go if you want to, you know, if you're into engineering or sort of high standard manufacturing. Uh, I think for them, though, uh, they're similar to kind of the mirror image to um, the international cohort, part of the cohort, which is that many of us would want to work in China for a couple of years, but then we feel that this know-how, knowledge of China that we have accumulated, we want to make it worthy, we want to make it of value to our own communities back at home. Mm. And I think for the Chinese students, it's very similar in that they definitely see sort of the the attraction of going to other countries and seeing how things are done there and uh, learning another language maybe and kind of doing kind of the reverse of what we're doing by living their way into a different society. But then they're most probably going to go back into China to develop there, of course, because one, China is, is a very large market and at the moment has many, many opportunities and uh, everyone I know is actually still optimistic despite the, the global economic situation. And also, of course, because they have family over there. They're, they're based there. Their families are based there. Sure. So now when, you, when we talked earlier about the difference in the times that when you first came to China and now, that it was a boom time and people were highly optimistic, uh, you said that's, that's been a, a little bit uh, n not so totally optimistic now because of just uncertainty in general around the world. What would you say mm -hmm. is the biggest source of optimism? What are they most excited about? When everybody there, and you guys included, when you look at China, uh -huh. what are the what are the big opportunities? Mm. So again, I have a very specific kind of maybe my my aperture is fairly focused on a specific area of interest that I share with some of my co-students and with speakers we've had come in, which is the fact that since China is so large. It produces a lot of data, uh, so it is basically the perfect kind of ecosystem within which 
companies that focus on machine learning or that use machine learning techniques and AI in order to uh, kind of harness the amounts of data that are sloshing around in China in order to either, you know, ameliorate their products or create entirely new products. In that sense, China is a very exciting place precisely because they just produce so much data. For instance, now at the moment I'm doing um, uh, a short internship in in a peer-to-peer -peer lending company, which many of which operations are, are based entirely upon salvaging uh, customer data. And uh, many of the very large Chinese enterprises, Alibaba, Tencent, they're, they're using a lot of this data that is generated by their applications in order to do everything from trying to improve the flow of traffic in cities to uh, trying to create social credit scores for people who might not have a credit card or not access to credit. So there's a lot of new innovation sort of revolving around the fact that China is just so large and has so many people that um, um, kind of create new opportunities for people who were able to harness these big data sets. Now that brings up a question about uh, access to data in general. You know, in the West we have this sort of peculiar schizophrenia that for the we give people all sorts of information over the web that maybe we should think twice about. And on the other hand, we have a we have um, a real sense of importance to our own privacy of our own data. The, most of the people I talk to tell me that that's not so evident in, in China. And it sounds like uh, the very access to all this data is really a gold mine in terms of doing the very kind of thing that you're trying to do. Is there anything around this privacy issue that I'm not understanding, or is that is that the case? That definitely, I would say, from what I know, and also in my case, is that a lot of people here especially people in my age bracket um, who are not in any you know, particularly important sort of positions and often don't have anything to lose that people knowing about our data is, yeah, people just don't have that same level of sensitivity. It seems as if people are rather happy to, to have a service like Alibaba, Alipay know what it is they're consuming on a daily basis in order for them, for them then to get a good credit score so next time around they they want to rent a car, they don't have to pay a deposit because they have this good credit rating. Um, it seems that I, I think people are aware of the fact that there's this data about them and their locations and um, their, their behavioral patterns and what they value that is being put out there, but it seems that people don't really mind having having this data being known. And I find myself being kind of caught up in that. And when I'm in China, I have my Chinese bank account, I use my, my WeChat pay, and my Alipay, and I don't really mind if people know what it is I'm purchasing, but if I were in a different uh, setting in Switzerland, I would probably would mind. So it's a bit strange that you get caught up in this kind of, in this bubble in which people seem to see that as less of an issue. That's fascinating, isn't it? It's, it is transactional, though. It sounds like I'm willing to give yeah. my information so long as I am getting something of value in return. And it sounds as if you're yeah, saying exactly. that indeed the interest, the, the impression is that you're getting something indeed quite valuable that you couldn't otherwise have access to. So uh, let's look at it from the other side. What do you see just from your observations there, especially since you've been there over time, what are the biggest challenges to this picture of China as being able to continue to grow into the future in a in a um, in a very positive way. What what stands in the way? What could be the hiccups? That's a hugely complex question, of course. Um, the biggest challenges, apart from the, the, the huge governance challenges that you have when you have in such a large country that is in transition, um, 
a demographic challenge probably. Uh, you have a population that, I forget the exact figures, but there are many reports there that probably go in the direction of Chinese, um, the Chinese American population decreasing dramatically by around 2050, which I suppose nobody really can say what exactly that means for, for economic growth um, in the future and for health expenditure. And as I understand it, the Chinese healthcare system is, is in, um, is, is being is in an overhaul, and many local experiments are being undertaken by local governments in order to ameliorate the provision of healthcare services to an aging population. And actually, a lot of a lot of investment in entrepreneurship also seems to revolve around the fact that the the population is people are getting older, healthcare more healthcare concerns pop up, and again, there's going to be labor around to to fill these um, to fill the workplaces. So I suppose. Mostly the demographic dividend is wearing off, and that, of course, entails all sorts of things. For example, one direct corollary is that, which is, of course, now happening with supply-side reform, is that the Chinese government is trying uh, to create an industrial policy such that the, the, the types of um, goods and services that China produces will be uh, higher up on the value chain so that they no longer need those masses of, of, of cheap labor, which no longer really exist as wages are rising and population is decreasing. Now, what about uh, the environment? You didn't mention that. Does that continue to be an yeah. issue of concern? Oh, yeah. That is a very, very big concern for everyone. Um, and uh, I have to say, though, it's gotten better. Uh, that, that, of course, is an entirely, an entirely subjective assessment, but I have heard it from multiple people, and I feel it as well to some extent, that... Since 2012, when I was last in China permanently, pollution, like blue sky days, have gotten more frequent, and very, very high pollution days have decreased. But of course, that you know, pollution remains uh, very debilitating at, day, at some days in, in Beijing, and that is also a specifically geographical problem for Beijing because it's located in sort of like a basin with mountains all around, so the pollution gets stuck there. In other places, for example, I just came back from Hangzhou and Shanghai here, the weather is actually, so far, it's been really, really beautiful. So I think it's, it's a very specifically Beijing problem, but it's also certain, certain provinces are highly, highly polluted. So it's very, depending on where you are, the problem is less or worse, but it definitely is a problem. It directly impacts um, the perception of like, the levels of pain of the populace, and thus the, the government takes it very, very seriously. But I feel like even though it's still bad, especially benchmarked against where I come from in Switzerland, it's definitely been getting better. And is that? Do you think that the um, that people in China are actually speaking up about pollution? It sounds to me like they choose their 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 uh, their battles. That is, that they speak up against authority when they think it's something truly important to them and that they can get somewhere. And pollution seems to be one of those things. Is that is that a correct impression? Do you feel that I think so, yeah. yeah. I think in many in many ways from sort of I can only ever speak really from the grassroots people that I meet. Of course through the Schwartz and Scholars program we've had the opportunity to interact with more high level government officials or with people higher up in the sort of highest echelons of the economy. But sense I gained from most people is that and I also apparently there's been a recent study which uh, I'm afraid to quote it because I think I forgot the name, but it's been quoted to me in Singapore. Um, a study that goes to show that government satisfaction across the board in China is extremely high. Despite the fact that there are many problems around and there are huge challenges in governance, 
But generally, people have the sense that the government is highly competent and that they will be able to, in the long term, solve the problems that they have. But it, as you said, environmental pollution is one of those problems that it just it impacts your daily life in such a dramatic way that there's been a lot more sort of activism going on around that. And actually, I had the privilege also through the program to, to get to know an environmental activist, a very famous one in China, who works together with the government and who produces a, an app in which you can search for uh, amounts of air pollution, amounts of water pollution, um, specific spots in specific cities where um, citizens themselves can take pictures of, like, um, uh, for example, if, if there are chemicals coming out of a plant, they take a picture of it and geolocate it and send it to this app so that the authorities also are aware of what's happening. So there's definitely a lot going on, but I think in general there's a sense that things are going to get better because, again, the government is very competent. I can say that from my personal experience, anyone I've interacted with from government, it local, central, and also a classmate of mine who's actually a mayor in a, in a one million person town in the south, they're highly educated and highly competent, and of course the problems they're dealing with are great, but on the whole people seem to think that it's going to get better. Well, Jasmine, that's fascinating about this app because that really is an indication that the government is is positively involving people in the issue, so that it's 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 actually letting them uh, participate in making them aware of the problem. That's that's very impressive. In fact, it sounds like a, a bit of a reflection of the same thing that they've done about corruption, the anti-corruption plans. That is, that people in villages can take pictures of what they think are um, corrupt activities and report them. So sounds like there is a very active uh, participation on the part of ordinary citizens. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, increasingly so. And yet, um, it's not, I, for my, for my own part, I don't see a lot of sort of Western-style campaigning. But then again, I think that springs from the fact that Chinese people in general, and here, of course, I'm generalizing and I can't speak for everybody and so on, but in general have a sense that their government is highly competent and um, not like as in as what you get, for example, in France, where whenever you're a little bit dissatisfied with something, you're going to go out into the streets and protest and uh, join activist groups. In China, it's much more, you know, they, they have much more strategic patience because they know the problems are complex and they don't demand anything of their, of their politicians that they know is not feasible. But in matters like environmental pollution, of course, which directly impacts them, their children, their family, they are quite active in, in making their concerns heard. But yeah, again, I think apart from things that move very slowly, like for example, the energy mix and sort of energy security in China, which are things you can't from one day to another close down all the coal plants. But for things that are movable, they are being moved. At least that's my subjective perception of things. I love that phrase, strategic patience. Um... It's one that we could put into action in a lot of places in the world, don't you think? So my, I'd love to hear, what's the general thinking? I know, again, you're talking about this particular bubble of people in, the, in that program, but that's a fascinating bit, uh, perspective to have. What's the thinking about what is going on in the West, specifically politically, you know, um, economically in the United States, for example, with our new leadership? What are people saying? I think that's, that's an interesting question because for us, I remember very clearly the day when Donald Trump got elected. We were all in our auditorium and we literally sat there through the entire afternoon looking at the scores as they piled in. And everybody from the West, that from Europe, from the US, or was US educated, was, were tied, we were tied to our seats and we were like, 
flabbergasted. We couldn't believe what was happening. But Chinese students in general were quite cool-headed about it. I think their understanding of the situation now is that, um, first of all, America has strong institutions. That is, any decision maker currently in power um, will be kind of calibrated by that, by other people, by different interests, by the institutional kind of um, checks and balances that are in place. And they also believe that Trump is much more, um, how should I call it, he, after all, he's also a strategist. He, he got, I think this is, and I'm paraphrasing some of my Chinese friends, um, he got to where he was because he's a strategic thinker and he isn't going to make decisions which have, you know, dramatic effect on, on the US economy, among which is, for instance, uh, starting a trade war with China simply because that would hurt him more than just kind of not starting any such conflicts. I think generally they're quite optimistic. Um, Sometimes our optimism is founded on arguments that I don't quite understand, or that I think are just, you know, they're more, they're more suppositions, but then again, just as much as our suppositions of everything is going to go downhill from now are founded on unfounded assumptions, perhaps, um, so are theirs. I think at the moment, the conversation has definitely calmed down a bit. Everybody's just waiting to see what happens when uh, President Xi Jinping perhaps meets with President um President Trump in, what's it called, Mar-a-Lago? And, yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> quite interested. Yeah. That, that, that should be interesting. Are there are there other things that I haven't asked you about that you think are especially um, interesting to think about in terms of the conversation that's taking place between Asia and the West, however we, uh, however we think about that or however we picture it? Actually, a conversation we've been having a lot in our college is the importance of, of language and how language just shapes your thinking. Um, especially for those among us who speak Mandarin fluently, it's opened so many doors, not just only in terms of, it pays out the dividend in terms of trust, whereby you can just get closer to people so much faster and they appreciate you as another human being as opposed to, oh, she's a foreigner, therefore I have to be careful around her or things like that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's certainly concepts which you only really have in a particular language that are very central to people's mentalities, and the, the, these are things you can only tap once you've had a certain amount of access to to works of literature, to popular culture, to popular culture nowadays and 20 years beforehand, maybe reading some novels. And the same thing counts for, for our Chinese uh, classmates who do the same thing in English or in another language. And um, it just occurs to us that there are far too few Mandarin speakers out there whose main subject is not sinology, learning specifically about China or East Asia. It's almost it's almost as if the market just underproduces these kinds of people because there's a general perception that if you study only one area as a specialization at university, that is not very helpful for you in the marketplace. But then people who do go out there, who become decision makers, who will be in the, in the, you know, strategically positioned in, in the economy or in politics, um, who would need those skills in order to be able to have these meaningful conversations, uh, with their, with their Chinese counterparts or Asian counterparts in general, they don't have those language skills. Um, those language skills, I mean, honestly speaking, you don't have to be fluent in Mandarin to be able to get access to these different kind of concepts and mentalities. And this is all very abstract. I think it's all something that sediments and you accumulate over time when you expose yourself to a different society. So I think that's, if, if there's a problem I would like to solve in the short term, it's the fact that 
he, so many more people could have much more fruitful interaction with Asia, with China specifically, if they just invested that little bit more into learning the language, just because it's that entry barrier into society. And after you've entered the society, you can you can consume literature from there, you can read the news there. All of a sudden, there's that alternative point of view, and there's those conversations that you have in the train or maybe in the airport, someone with a Chinese person that you then remember and that kind of call you thinking about the world and world order, which is something we talk a lot about in our college. Which I think if only more people invested just that much a little more time in Mandarin, not not as a way to embellish their CVs, but as a way to open this kind of off into the Chinese society, I think that would be probably very helpful. That's fascinating. Now, can you can can you give the listeners just an example of, you know, unless you really spoke Mandarin or had studied it, you wouldn't have gotten X. Can you give us just one example of that? I know it's pretty abstract, but. Uh-huh. Um, so, for instance, just recently we talked about the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Okay, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. It's it's a book that's kind of has the same status as perhaps, hmm, let me think, maybe Jaya Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It's kind of like a, a, a very sort of heroic epos um, that plays in a period after the collapse of the Eastern Han Dynasty, I believe. I might have messed up my history there. But it's a book that everybody in China has either read or seen a sort of a TV show about, or they play video games with the theme. So people drop, say, sort of like names of characters or, or use like idioms that come from this book. That's just one um, example that I discussed with a friend recently where it's just, it's useful. And if you're in a conversation with the Chinese people, and you drop a reference from Sanguo Yi from the Three Kingdoms, um, then they will think, ah, oh, this, this foreigner knows about Three Kingdoms. You know, that's, that's a book I read in my childhood, and they automatically feel that much more respected by you because you happen to know something that is, you know, yeah, part of their life that they thought you probably wouldn't know. That's fascinating. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add to the conversation that that has been an observation of yours? That one is fascinating. Uh huh. Yeah, I guess it is perhaps more of a conclusion for what for the aforementioned few things is that Chinese people and Asian people in general, many of them, including some friends of which I went to university in London, they grew up kind of straddling both worlds. They grew up kind of in the English speaking world and they grew up in the Chinese speaking world from a fairly young age onwards. So they're able to maneuver smoothly through both societies. And they're able to find information they need to gain access to. They're able to make contacts across these civilizational borders, if there is such a thing. Um, whereas in the West, due to many factors, such as, for example, just the, the ease with which we can get by with English, we don't really do that. We don't grow up into civilizations, which I think I just think it would be fantastic if we had the opportunity to, to do that more often. And I did it through a uh, high school exchange. And now I'm doing it through Schwarzman Scholars, and I think Schwarzman Scholars is one of the most incredible initiatives I've seen on that front, probably ever. Um, but if that were to be extended, not just you know Western civilization, Chinese civilization, just generally, if people were to grow up uh, having the set of beliefs that it's important for them to simultaneously get to know one other civilization really well, I think that would make for a much higher quality conversation in in diplomatic rounds, in in you know diplomatic visits, or just generally in the international sort of business landscape. I've always had this fantasy that if we could just have every every person in the world when they reach the age of 18 
know that they're going to spend two years in some other place, some other country than their own, we'd never have a war. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in a in a way, you're we're we're wishing to create the romance of two kingdoms at least, having people have at least one other place that they are very familiar with and thus expand their own thinking about not just that place, but every other place in the world. Fascinating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, this was really uh, a terrific conversation, Jasmine. I appreciate this so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. I, I enjoy having these sort of conversations. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.